Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tom Kang. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. In no other country on earth is my story even possible. Many of you remember that was actually the speech that put our next president on the map. I mean, I know it's hard for you to, 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 to remember or even to imagine now, but, but just over four years ago at the Democratic National Convention, this Barack Obama, this young senator from Illinois, actually delivered that keynote address, which totally wowed those whom had never heard of him, as well as his critics and fans alike. And, and you know, many people agree that much of the wow factor that particular evening had to do with Obama's very confident, yet at the same time, very self-revealing posture. In fact, did you notice the way he just came right out from the get-go and said it? Let's face it, my presence on this stage is pretty unlikely. You see, Obama knew. He had the self-awareness. His father was a goat herder in this tiny village in Kenya, and his grandfather, did you catch this, was a domestic servant to the British. Uh, Meanwhile, his mother grew up in Kansas in this blue-collar home, products of the Great Depression, yet the rest, as you know, is history, because just four years later, and suddenly, Barack Obama has the most famous street address in the whole world. It's the total American dream come true. Absolutely amazing. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Tom, and I'm one of the pastors here at Liquid Church. And yeah, let it be said, let's, let's face it, my presence on this stage is pretty unlikely as well, right? But nevertheless, I want to welcome you. Finally, you got, some of you got it. This is part two of our timely December series, Letters to the Next President. This is a series where not only are you encouraged to, you know, check out our blog, specially designed, you know, letterstothenextpres.com to share your thoughts and your prayers and your concerns about the next president. But this is also a series where we explore some modern day principles found in that battle-tested, all-time classic leader's manual, the good old Bible, right? Because just like what Pastor Tim shared last week, this is not a series about the P word, politics. No, this is actually a series about something much more important. This is a series about leadership, which is why I actually love one of the posts from this past week on our letters to the next prez.com blog here. You, you see it there. One of the, one of the posts came from Stephen Edwards. He wrote, Dear Mr. President-elect Barack Obama, I'm a follower of Jesus, but please don't hold that against me. Because I promise not to bludgeon you with Bible verses to support my views, while my brother down the street uses verses from the same book to support his very different and opposite views. Instead, I'll just keep it short and sweet. Please remember your humble start and learn from the mistakes and victories of those who went before you. 
proud to be an American, Stephen Edwards. Thank you, Stephen. You totally get it. You totally hit it on the nail there, buddy, because, again, we are not here to proof text our own agenda. Everyone knows here what, what proof texting is, right? It, it's, it's basically this, this sort of mechanical Bible search of all the different verses that you can possibly think of to support your own preconceived position on whatever sort of fill-in-the-blank topic that you're talking about and declare that position as authoritative or absolute. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing a little bit, but, but Christians have been kind of known to do this sort of thing in the past, right? When it came to things like slavery or, or, or women's roles and, and things like that. And yeah, let's just say it hasn't always been too kind. So, so instead, our aim today in this particular series is about a bigger issue, leadership. Specifically, the kind of leadership that God has historically blessed and used to actually change lives and families and homes and generations upon generations. Now, this may sound grandiose, but you know, as Pastor Tim mentioned last week, all of us in this room, and those of you listening and watching online, all of us here are leaders because we have a certain level of influence. And, and how we use that influence in our homes, with our children, and our families, in our schools, and in our jobs, and in our communities, and in the workplace. How we use our influence is decisive. So, so the question becomes, what does it take to be a leader? What does it mean to be a leader? How do I become a better one? You know, you think about Obama, and he's also, all of a sudden, he's just been thrust into this position of incredible influence, hasn't he? I mean, some of you already know, you, you, you've seen this last month's uh, Newsweek cover, right? And, and, and you want to talk about expectations? I mean, check out that headliner. Can you read that from where you are? How to fix the world. I mean, think about, talk about those expectations. I mean, if Newsweek were to do a story on your life right now, what would that cover say? You know what my cover would read? How to fix my stupid garage door. I mean, that thing is like causing us so much grief. Like the past three weeks, we don't even know where to start, right? Maybe for you it would read something like, you know, how to fix my, my finances, or, or how to fix my car, or how to fix my spouse, right? I, I don't know, but, but what we do know is that we all have challenges. And, and what's true for every single leader, no matter what the arena, no matter who or where is this, a great leader brings with her, brings with him, a great strategy. Great leaders have great strategies. Whether we're talking about businesses, uh, whether we're talking about family rules and expectations, financial strategies, ministry visions and values, team organizations, great leaders don't like haphazardly lead. It's not like they just go about fumbling about their business with all of a sudden, you know, turning around to this crowd. I didn't know that you were following me. Oh my gosh. No, no, no. Great leaders have great strategies for the problems they will inevitably face. In fact, if you think about it, just going back to that Newsweek, you look at that cover and, and what do you see? 
You see this picture of our next president, the leader of our nation, right? He's looking all svelte in this nice suit, and he's stepping onto this private jet, and, you know, he's about to take off and do important leadership stuff, right? He's going to fix the world because that's what leaders do, right? But when you actually open that magazine and you flip to the cover story, do you know what the article is about? Do you, do you know what the headline is? The, the actual article is titled, Wanted, a new grand, what's the word? Strategy. Exactly. Or as our current president would say, strategy. Sorry, I just couldn't resist that one. But seriously, a strategy is literally defined, strategy, literally defined as a plan of action designed to achieve a particular goal, most often winning. Winning. I mean, everyone wants to win. Some of you are still hung up on strategy. Uh, win in your relationships. You want to win in life. You want to live. You want to win in everything. And I, and I know, I get it. Some of you, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, you know what? It'd be nice to win, Pastor Tom. Great. But you know what? I don't have time to sit there and develop a good strategy. You know why? Because I'm too busy. You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to get by in life. I, I, it takes me enough just to raise my kids and, and get them fed and clothed and out the door in time for school. I mean, I, I'm busy enough as it is just trying to make ends meet. I don't have time to strategize. I get it. I totally get that. But you know, check out the intro paragraph to that article. It says, grand strategy sounds like an abstract concept, something academics discuss, and one that bears little relationship to urgent, jarring events on the ground. But in the absence of strategy, in the absence of strategy, any administration will be driven by the news reacting rather than what? Leading. For a superpower that has global interests and is forced to respond to virtually every problem, it's all too easy for the urgent to drive out the important. See, you may want to think of it this way. A good strategy never lets a problem go to waste. In other words, a good strategy will turn any problem, issue, struggle, challenge, obstacle into a win. So well, let me ask you something. Is anyone here facing a problem? <laughs> anyone here experiencing, I don't know, maybe some sort of financial struggle? Or, or how about some relational friction? Or, or, or maybe spiritual challenges. Anyone here have one of those? Or, or maybe a physical crisis. You know, personally speaking, in just the past eight or nine days or so, I've been to two viewings and done a funeral. Anyone else here going through a kind of a physical crisis, a physical issue? You see, everyone's got challenges, but do you have a strategy to deal with them? See, great biblical leaders have strategies that do not allow problems to have the final word. And you know, some strategies, well, some strategies are better than others. Uh, check this out. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 17. It's found on page 214 in your Bibles there. And, 
And as you turn there, I'm just going to remind you that, you know, last week, Pastor Tim was talking about, he introduced this life of King David, right? This ancient leader who also must have thought, just like our Obama, he must have thought, in no other country is my story even possible. Why? Because you see, David was once a sheep herder himself. And he too was a young and inexperienced man when he took the reins of a nation, also in the midst of war. And so you know what, you can just picture him there, right? Being sworn in on the steps of the capital, right? On his knees, the commander-in-chief, in this declaration of dependence. Now you can just picture him there. And you know, what do they say about the first hundred days of anything? They, they, they say the first hundred days is, is like honeymoon, right? Yeah, not so much. Not in this case. Look with me here at verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. Now, you know, this is interesting because you'd assume that a new king or or a new president or a king in this case would have, you you would think that he would have an easy go of it his first hundred days. You know, like, like the people would just sort of give him a break and uh, give him some time to find his footing, get, get his desk organized, right? You, you'd think that his enemies would give him a free pass for a couple months, right? Yeah, not so much. In fact, some of you have, who have stepped up as leaders, maybe at work or in your job search, or, or, or maybe you've uh, attempted to step up, you know, and be the spiritual leader in your home or your relationship, Well, then I'm pretty sure that you've probably learned one of the first lessons, the first laws of leadership, and that is this. Anytime you step up to take new ground as a leader, you don't have to worry about finding your enemies. Trouble always finds you. It's like clockwork. You know, I I remember actually back in my first year at seminary, This is like right after a long series of difficult decisions I had made, coming to the point of realizing, yeah, okay, I get it, God. You know what? I get it. I I can't ignore this call to ministry anymore. I I commit myself to you and your plan and your ways and and the training and the education and the experience and the sacrifices, et cetera, et cetera. I I get it. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm stepping up. And, And wouldn't you know it, my first year in seminary just totally rocked me. I mean, I, I just got depressed. I wanted to quit. Just, you know, I, I mean, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, financially. I mean, it would start getting really weird. I, I would find myself bombarded with like, like even all like these temptations and, and struggles and, and things that I hadn't struggled with for years, like, like smoking and and like old girlfriends would pop up out of nowhere and I'd just be haunted. It, it, just, it, it got really messy. It's almost like the moment, the day that I decided to step up, I got my clock cleaned over and over again for like a year. I'm telling you, you try and step out on new ground for good, and you are bound to run into trouble. Gee, that sounds promising, doesn't it? But that's exactly what happened to David. He literally becomes king at the ripe old age of 30. He's this young man, and he's going to boldly lead the charge. He's going to lead God's people forward. And what's the first thing that happens? His enemies went up in full force to search for him. They weren't going to throw him a party either, right? And not just any enemy, mind you, 
But his arch enemy, the Philistines. You all remember who the Philistines were, right? Who did David have that, uh, that, that famous battle with? David and? Exactly. And Goliath was like the ultimate warrior of the Philistine tribe. I mean, that's the Philistines that we're talking about. That's the David that we're talking about. Notice with me here. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Verse 18. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Ephraim. So, so what did David do? David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And you know what? This is kind of funny because you'd expect a young leader, a guy full of, you know, testosterone and, you know, and bravery and, and macho, a, a guy who just took the office and, and he's got these brand, you know, brand new office and, and his enemies who he previously thrashed. They come looking for, a, you know, they, they want to pick a fight. And you would think that David would be like, yeah, you know, all hot to trot, right? Up for the challenge. I mean, here's a perfect opportunity to like flex his muscles, right? Show them who's boss, right? Who's in charge to, to establish his strength and his power and authority for everyone to see so that there is no doubt who's the boss. In other words, it would be so easy for him to charge straight into battle. But David doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do first? So David inquired of the Lord. He, he paused and asked God. He, he had a question for God first. You know, sh should I go and attack the Philistines? Or should I, w will you hand them over to me? Uh, let's think about that for a second. I mean, David was a pure stud. Right? Years before, as like this pimply-faced teenager... He showed up an entire Philistine army by taking down Goliath. His older brothers were afraid. And now as a 30-year-old man, young man, newly coronated king of God's people and the anointed celebrated leader of an entire nation, just as he's getting used to his shiny new digs, he gets wind of this old enemy with this pathetic big old grudge and how they want to hunt him down. But, but even so, with the enemy just itching for a fight, before this natural-born leader runs headlong into the battle, notice what he does first. He inquires of God. In other words, he does not rest on his laurels. He doesn't take anything for granted. He doesn't try to just muscle through it, you know, with his experience and know-how and with his own strength. No, instead, first he seeks God. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And then check this out. The Lord answered him, go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. And verse 20 says, so David went to Baal-perazim and, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim and the Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. It's academic. Don't you get it? David kicked their butts before, and now he kicks their butts again. I mean, this guy is on a complete roll. In fact, it would be easy for him to think that the strategy he used previously in success 
would be the same strategy that would translate to all future success. Because after all, we all do that. We all play that game, don't we? We, we find something that works for us, something that wins in our life, and we simply assume that we can get by and, and keep on doing the same strategy in all areas of our life over and over again. But now watch what happens in verse 22, because apparently these Philistines are a feisty bunch. Verse 22 says, Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. In other words, for a third straight time, these guys come back. And, 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 and you got to think at this point, David must be like looking at these guys, lining up. And he must be thinking to himself, are you, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, I've seen Rambo. I've seen Rambo part two. You want Rambo part three? All right, let's do it. Get your swords on. You know, time for Smackdown number three. Right? Verse 23. So David inquired of the Lord. Again, do not let this slip. You gotta love this. You gotta love this about David. He always begins with this dependency upon God. This is the third time, and he's still inquiring of God. But notice God's response this time. Verse 23. David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go. Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees? And so like suddenly David is, is presented with what sounds like something I guess we would call a strategy, right? Remember, a strategy is a plan of action that leads to a win. And likewise, another definition of strategy is a military plan designed to outwit one's enemies. And so God is like, this time, David, and not everything's the same. This time, I've got a new strategy for you. Instead of charging right into battle, do not go straight up. But circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees now here is where it gets really weird. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly. We're like, what are you, what's top of the trees marching? What are there monkeys up there? What's, what's going on? Is God losing it here? No, no, no. Because that will mean the Lord has what? Let's read this together. Gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. Do you see what's happening here? See, think about this. We have the same exact David. We have the same exact enemy. So you would assume that you would have the same exact strategy, but no. God says, no, 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 this time, don't go out, don't go out with your, you know, your swords drawing, your horses and all that stuff. Don't go out there and rush into battle. No, instead I need you to just pause. And I, I, I need you just to slow down, hit the pause button, 
and wait. Wait, what are you talking about? We, we can do this. Wait for my signal. But we've done it before. We know how to kick these guys' butts. I mean, we can... I know. I know. This time, I want you to wait. How difficult do you think this was for a young leader and his army of soldiers to wait? I mean, picture it. He had to turn to these guys who were probably they were just like licking their chops, you know, rubbing their hands, sharpening their swords, getting the horses ready. And, and he had to say to them, guys, 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 just, you know, hold it up. God's, God's telling us to, to, to just wait. Just, just, just wait until uh, we, we hear like marching in the trees. What? His guys must have been like, like marching and like, what are you crazy? This is our new king? Right? And this is mysterious, folks, because you get what's happening here? God's saying, not all the time are things the same. You know, this time it's different. Before rushing ahead into battle like you always did, this time I am going ahead of you. I will lead you myself. My strategy is this. I will send my spirit out in front of you because my spirit is more powerful than all your nation's swords put together. See, waiting for God to make the first move, folks, in, in my humble opinion, this is one of the most difficult lessons a godly man or woman can learn. I mean, it is hard to wait, isn't it? Especially when it just seems like you've been waiting forever. I mean, if you've been out of work and those bills are piling up and, and you've got resumes out there on monsters.com and, and you've hit the interviews and, and you're waiting to hear, but, but no one's calling back. Uh, or, you know, maybe you're someone and you've been waiting for that perfect someone. You know, just waiting and waiting for Mr. You know, Mrs. Right. And, and it's just been so long. And, and, you know, your parents are getting on your case. And your, your Uncle Bob, you know, you're going to see him in Christmas. And he's going, so did you find anyone yet? And like all your friends are getting married and they're engaged. They're even having kids. What is going on? And you finally reach the point where you're like, you know what? I don't even care about Mr. Right because I'll take Mr. Right now. So much of life, we're tempted to take things into our own hands. And our strategy, our strategy before we know it becomes something like this. Just take the first thing that comes along. Because waiting, waiting on God. Well, I mean, aren't strategies supposed to be about, you know, bold and decisive action? Yeah, they are. In the kingdom of man. But sometimes, sometimes God has a different plan. 
Sometimes because he has a better strategy in mind, he simply asks us to wait. And and waiting for the signal from God can be the hardest thing a man of God or a woman of God can do in life. Because you know what? If you've got, let's say you've got a health problem and you've been sick or or you're trying to find a a diagnosis and you finally mustered up enough courage to go and get your exams and go to the doctors and get your tests and, and the test results are inconclusive. It's time to wait. But catch this. It's part of his divine strategy. Because when we hit the pause button and learn to wait on God, we learn a secret of godly leadership. And that is this. True strength. I'm talking about true power in life over every challenge we face arises only as we wait upon the Lord to go before us. And yeah, that is counterintuitive. But you know, sometimes the boldest actions we can possibly take when our flesh cries out, do something! It's to learn to wait until we hear the sound of God's voice commanding us that now is the time to engage the enemy. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. What was that like for William Wallace with his ragtag bunch of men to wait, to hold, 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 hold? 
as this English army with their swords and steeds charged full steam ahead to bear down on them and take their lives. What was it like for David and his men to wait in silence, to be still, holding their breaths as they listen for the sound of God's signal in the treetops. Sometimes waiting is the most counterintuitive, and let's just be frank, excruciating, yet powerful strategy a leader can follow. And by the way, did did you catch the sequence there? When David was a shepherd, this little shepherd boy with a sling, he slew one Philistine. Later in round two, uh, he scattered their entire army, but they came back. And this time, the third time, there was a different strategy. This time he waited, waited for the Lord to give the word. And what was the result? He struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Translation, he literally wiped out the entire assembled army and chased them over 20 miles across the land. What situation are you facing right now that you are so tempted to rush into? You know, to just kind of make things happen. Because you can make it happen if you wanted to. You know, maybe, maybe you're wanting a job or, or a promotion. Or, or maybe you're waiting for a spouse. Or maybe you're waiting to start a family. Waiting is not easy. I get that. In fact, if you're a leader and you're predispositioned, you're biased towards action, you think waiting is for chumps. Because everyone knows a leader takes charge. He takes things right into his own hands, right? But what if God had a different strategy? What if waiting was part of his divine plan to do something even better than what you could possibly do in your own strength? You see, there's a reason why David was anointed king over Israel. You realize he wasn't the first king. No, there was actually someone before him, King Saul. And and King Saul was a good king, an effective leader. At least for a time he was. Uh, But but, but then, you know, God took away uh, Saul's kingship. Uh, He literally stripped him of of all his blessings and his influence over people. Now why? Why did this happen? What did Saul do that was so wrong? What was his fatal leadership flaw? Uh, I want you to turn with me back in your Bibles to to 1 Samuel chapter 13 there. It's on page 195. Uh, because, Because although Saul was the first original king over Israel, there's actually a moment where he makes a strategic colossal mistake and winds up literally forfeiting everything that he has. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 1 actually tells us that Saul was 30 years old when he became king. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, in in other words, Saul was the same age as David when he became king over Israel. And, And in this passage, guess who Saul's fighting? 
the Philistines. That's right. 42 years before David and the same enemy, right? Verse 5 reads, The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands on the seashore. This was a huge army, right? They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical, and that their army was hard-pressed. They hid in caves and, and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. So basically, the Israeli army was, was totally scared. They were intimidated by this vast Philistine military machine that was approaching them. They were quaking and shaking in their boots. And on top of that, Saul had been instructed specifically to wait for Samuel, the nation's prophet. See, but the problem was, Samuel was a no-show. And so for a whole week, Saul and his men are, are waiting for Samuel and the, while this vast Philistine army is bearing down on them. So, so what did Saul do? What would you do? Did, did he wait for God's blessing? Look at verse 7. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. And so he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering himself. Translation, Saul couldn't wait any longer as the biggest battle of his life was coming down on him. So what did he decide to do? He decided to take matters into his own hands. Verse 10. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. Wouldn't you know it? And Saul went out to greet him. Verse 11. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied. <laughs> You see, like, when I saw the, the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I, I thought, now, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So, so I felt compelled to, you know, offer the burnt offering myself. I, I, I had to do it. I had no choice. I, I couldn't wait any longer. I couldn't help myself. Have you ever been there? Question, what situation in your life, in your area of leadership right now, has you tempted to take things into your own hands? See, there is a victory that God may want to give you but it's going to be on his time clock, not yours. Saul, make no mistakes, was a driven leader. He was a decisive leader. He was a bold leader and a leader who never learned how to wait for God to go ahead of him. And so he went ahead of God. And the result? Verse 13. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. 
you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. In other words, God stripped Saul of his leadership position because although he was a great warrior, although he was the people's choice, he was a very popular leader. From God's perspective, he was a lousy strategist. A totally ill-equipped for serving under a true king. A, a king who forges the metal of his leaders through the slow process of waiting. Question is, as we move forward towards the end of 2008 and 2009 is, is looking right at us, what does God have you waiting for? And better yet, what is he trying to teach you through your waiting? Because know this, your waiting has a purpose. David learned to wait well. I mean, all those years in the sheep fields, can you just imagine those years spent under the stars? I mean, what was he doing tending those flocks all by himself? He was doing this. He was, he was writing psalms. Right? He was reflecting on the character of God and, and enjoying God the Creator and falling in love with the Creator God and, and until one day the same Creator God said, I, I, I found Him. I, I've, I found a man that I can trust, a man that's after my own heart, someone I will appoint leader over all my people. I know that I can trust this man. Why? Because he knows how to wait for me. You see, in the end, God's strategy, His divine plan of teaching us to wait on His signal, it's not just about fighting battles and wars. It is about forging your character. It's sculpting on the inside of each woman and man a heart that is more like His something that is dependent on his strength, surrendered to his will, obedient to his word. Folks, what does God have you waiting for? And would you be willing to trust him, not just for the outcome in 2009, but the actual process, the timing of it? Hey, you don't understand, I've got deadlines, you know, I, it's been so long, I've, been, I've already been waiting, or, or, you know, I've got this, like, these Philistines, they're coming down and they're bearing down on me. You, you know what? David knew a secret that still holds true for us today. And that is, relying on your own strength of leadership is nowhere near as powerful as relying on the strength of God. This leader who was described as a man after God's own heart was a leader, a great leader, with a very simple strategy that you and I can embrace. 
His simple strategy was this. Number one, always inquire of God first. And number two, hurry up and wait. To great leaders, leaders who understand the grand strategy behind all of life, understand that true strength will rise when we wait upon the Lord. You know, that's exactly why if I were writing a letter to the next president, it would read something like this. Dear Mr. President, Congratulations on your historic election. From, from your first day in office to your last, you no doubt will be faced with many challenges, battles to fight, enemies to engage, issues to address. These and more will certainly prove grounds that test both your patience and mettle. During those moments, Mr. President, my hope is that you will hit the pause button and exercise the most strategic, if not counterintuitive, action a leader can take at times to wait. The Bible promises, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Mr. President, I don't expect you to engage every challenge perfectly, but my prayer is that you learn to wait and renew your strength in God alone so that one day it may be said of you, as it was for King David, there goes a man whose heart is after God. With audacious hope, Pastor Tom. That's my advice this week on Letters to the Next Prez. What's yours? What is God teaching you? Would you go ahead and, and log on this week and, and share your thoughts, share your insights, and, and until then, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I uh, just... I claim the words of Apostle Paul that my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that our faith might not rest on man's wisdom or man's strategy, but on God's power. Lord, we confess that it is sometimes the hardest thing to wait for you. You know, we like to think of ourselves as people of action and, and decisiveness and, and charge. And, 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 but God, it's, it's just counterintuitive to us. Um, maybe that reflects something about our hearts. Maybe that reflects something about, you know, us not being able to trust you, the good and heavenly Father, our Daddy. You're our Daddy. We can, we can trust you. You know better than we do. You're stronger than we are. And you love us so much. So help us to trust you. Help us to inquire of you first and then to wait upon you. And as we wait, Lord, won't you encourage us? Won't you strengthen us? And Lord, in that process, some way, somehow, trigger our hearts and we might fall more in love with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.